Many times at Christian weddings, you hear the words from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great chapter that's filled with all of these verses about love. And they oftentimes, two young Christians are dreamy-eyed, they're in love, they want these verses to be read at their wedding, they want their marriage to truly reflect what biblical love looks like. And so the words are often read, love is patient, love is kind. If you haven't heard these at a wedding, you've probably seen them at a, on a coffee mug or something. But love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, love isn't arrogant, love isn't rude, love does not insist on its own way. Love is not resentful or irritable. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But what happens so often is that once the marriage gets going, these hopes of biblical love often get lost. And the impatience and the lack of kindness and the envy or the boasting or the pride or the irritability come into play into the marriage almost as soon as what we call that honeymoon stage is over. And those of you who are married or have observed marriages, you know how true this can be. That it seemed good and almost easy and the honeymoon stage was wonderful. And then little by little, sin starts to creep in. Bethany and I were married in Wisconsin, but we honeymooned in Maine. And I think I've told you this before, but I remember driving. We're hand in hand, driving around Sugarloaf, because that's where we spent our honeymoon. And I'm thinking, this is just so easy. (laughs) How how do people have issues, right? Can you imagine being in a marriage where sin is simply not an issue? Where you would never even be tempted to be impatient with your wife. That you were never tempted to be proud. That you never would be irritable or resentful. You'd never insist on your own way. You'd never struggle with forgiveness or you'd never struggle with trust. What a marriage really should be. Yet none of our marriages have been completely void of impatience or irritability or rudeness or arrogance. All of our marriages have been affected. Yet there is... This marriage in the Bible, for honeymoon season, they never struggled with these things. A marriage that was in paradise. A marriage that had no need of marital counseling from God. A marriage that was so whole, so pure, so lovely. Friends, marriage is a really important concept to understand if you're going to understand the Bible. If you don't understand marriage, you really can't understand some of the major themes within the Bible. The Bible begins with a marriage in the Garden of Eden, right here in Genesis chapter 2, where Adam and Eve are brought together in perfect matrimony, sinless perfection, beautiful marriage in paradise. But then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 19, there is another marriage. And so as one author has said, that you really can't understand the Bible if you don't understand marriage because the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage, the marriage between Jesus and his bride. But look with me beginning in Genesis chapter 2 at this first marriage, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. 
The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we transition from what we learned last week to what we learned this week. Last week in verses 15 to 17, we saw this covenant that God had entered into with the man. But because God is a covenant-keeping God. God wants to be in covenant relationship with His creatures. And again, that's important for us to know because this is the way that God has a relationship with you. If God is in a relationship with you, it is based off of covenant. It is through covenant. But this morning we see another covenant within chapter 2. A covenant between not God and man, but with two creatures, with man and woman. So Adam is to have a vertical covenant relationship with God, but we also see that Adam is to have a horizontal covenant relationship, specifically with Eve. This all begins with the recognition of the problem. In verse 18, you see what God says. And it's interesting that God is the one that says this. He says, it is not good that man should be Alone. Now, this is very different language than chapter 1. Do you remember how God created everything? He created the light, the land, the seas, He created the animals. And after He created all of these things, what was the word that He used? Over and over. It was good. It was good. It was good. But then in Genesis chapter 2, all of a sudden, God is the one who is saying, but this is not good. This is not good that the man is alone. He has no helper. He has no complement. He has no counterpart. But what's interesting is that instead of just making Eve right then and there, it's almost like God wants us to dawn on Adam. It's interesting to watch young men go from swearing off all the female kind, and then it just kind of dawns on them one day, oh, kind of like women. Like, girls are kind of attractive, right? Kind of make that switch. And it's almost like God he wants us to dawn onto Adam. And it does eventually dawn onto Adam. So he doesn't directly cut to the chase and create Eve. Instead, God is going to use a a pedagogical tool of sorts to teach Adam, to show him his need. God mentions the problem in verse 18, but then in verse 19, he doesn't provide the solution right away. Instead, he forms the animals. He creates the beasts of the field, the birds, and he begins to bring them to man. And as Adam is going through all of the animals here, the sense that we are supposed to get is that Adam is looking through all of these animals and all of them are paired up with one another. We we aren't told here, but if we could use some biblical imagination, we can see all of the animals lined up kind of like Noah's Ark, two by two by two by two, right? You have the lion and the lioness. You have the bull and the cow. You have the rooster and the chicken. And as Adam is going through all of these animals, he's just noticing, well, that has feathers. I don't have feathers. That's got fur. I don't have fur. That has a beak. I don't have a beak. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
But Adam is created to live in community. Just like his God lives in community. The Trinity is a community of persons. One being, three persons. Eternally satisfied and joyful and complete in and of himself as God. And Adam, being made in the image of God, is also to be meant to live in community. Yet nobody is found for him to live with. As much as some of you love your pets, and I know some of you love your pets, they are not people. They cannot and they do not provide what a human can provide. They cannot provide a a setting of deep intimacy and trust and relationship that a spouse can provide. And Adam is seeing that none of the animals are looking or acting or speaking like he is. Again, he sees the fur, he sees the feathers, the scales and the talons. He hears the clucking and the mooing and the roaring or whatever else. And he smells them all. But he doesn't hear anybody else speaking his language. He doesn't see anybody with his smooth skin. He's looking and he sees that the T-Rex has a mate. The cow has a mate, the eagle. But no mate is found for Adam. Even though that's the case in terms of Adam's human relationships, he still has to obey and serve the Lord. You remember that earlier in chapter 2, God said that he was going to put Adam into the garden in order to do two things. To work the garden and to keep the garden. And so even though there's no helper fit for Adam, there's still a very clear responsibility that God has given him to do. Namely, in naming all of these animals. This is an exercise in dominion, right? Remember the dominion mandate of chapter 1? That Adam was supposed to rule the earth, subdue the earth. And so this is something that he's supposed to be doing as the animals come. He's going to name them. And one of the things that I had told you before a few weeks ago was that to name something is to have authority over it. The child that my wife is going to have, we have the authority to name that child. It's my child. And so on. So Adam is showing his authority over creation. Authority given to him by God. And he's doing this through the naming of all of these animals. He's taking dominion, which is exactly what God has called him to do. Remember that God had taken it upon himself in chapter 1 to to name things. God named the light day and the darkness night. He named the sky, the heavens, and so forth. And Adam is simply picking up where God has left off. He's doing what God would have done without him. And so he's going on to the animals and he's naming them one by one. But we still have this nagging problem. If in verse 18 God says it is not good for man to be alone, well that problem still hasn't been solved. Adam has everything. He has a place to live. He has a place to work. He has all of the food that he could ever want. But it's not good for him to be alone. All of the wonderful animals in the world couldn't solve Adam's problem of aloneness. I hesitate to say loneliness, but he's certainly alone. And these animals couldn't solve this problem. And God's solution, you notice, also isn't to create Adam a few buddies. That Adam would just have some pals to hang out with, and that's how he would solve Adam's aloneness. No. Instead, this aloneness is taken away by God preparing a wife for Adam, a help me. This word for help me is really interesting. God uses this word in various places of the Bible in reference to military reinforcements. But we often think of the word helper and we think of the hired hand, right? Like you can give this person as, mu- as little money as possible. They'll keep coming. They'll keep working. If they don't work out, we'll just hire another helper and on and on. Down the- but that's not the concept you should be getting when you read help me. The concept you should get is that this is 
a reinforcement for Adam. This is military reinforcements. The biblical notion of a helper or help me is somebody who is indispensable. Somebody that is desperately needed. Somebody that you cannot do without. And this is what Eve would be to Adam. She would be indispensable. She would be his reinforcements. She was the helper given to him by God. The solution to his problem of aloneness. She was going to be indispensable to fulfilling this mandate. Not only would she be helping Adam in his various duties within the garden and naming and, and so forth, but she would also be the means by which God would begin to populate the planet. But notice with me how Eve was created. She is distinct from all of the creatures and how she is made. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. I'll stop there. So man and beast are made from the dust. The woman is taken from the side of man. So, so what God is doing here, and this is the picture we should be getting, is that God is playing the part of both anesthesiologist and surgeon. He, he causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He's that anesthesiologist. And then he opens Adam up. He pulls a rib out and then he fashions the woman out of the rib. Let, let me dispel a myth. Um, oftentimes you'll hear that men have one less rib than women uh, because of what God did. That, that's not true. Okay? Adam would have still had the DNA to have that extra rib. It was just taken out in order to make his wife. So myth dispelled. If you've ever heard that one. You can put that away. But the word for made here, when God says that he made Eve out of the rib, the word is actually the word for build. He built the woman out of the rib of man. Eve was created for Adam, built for Adam, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. And so neither Adam or Eve was procreated. They didn't have parents. Neither of them spent time in the womb. Neither, never was either of them hooked up to any kind of umbilical cord, which begs the question, do they have a belly button? If they were not hooked up to an umbilical cord. How many say they had belly buttons? Who, who thinks Adam and Eve had belly buttons? Who doesn't think they had belly buttons? All right, well, a lot of you voted present, I guess, but didn't actually vote. But she was made out of Adam's rib. Matthew Henry notes the following about this, as many have. He said, The woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him. Not out of his feet to be trampled by him. But out of his side to be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected. And near to his heart to be beloved. And at Windsor Christian Fellowship, we we fully and unapologetically affirm the equality of the sexes. Man and woman are both created in the image of God. That Eve is not some sort of inferior to Adam. But that the man says, he he goes on and he says, at last, like this is somebody that he wants to be with him. This is somebody that, that you would never neglect those reinforcements. She is equal to him. She is with him. And Adam goes on and he says, at last. And why would he say at last? Had it really been that long? He hadn't been created very long ago. It's not like he went months and months without a spouse. But God brings his bride to him. And he says, This time, after seeing all of the beasts of the field 
and the birds of the air. I have the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh. This is the woman that is perfectly suitable to him. That he is not elevated above and beyond his wife in terms of value. A husband is never to demean his wife. To lift himself up as superior to his wife. To cause his wife to feel untrusted or uncared for or unloved. Man, if that's you in any way, you you have repenting to do. This is not an individual. Your wife is not somebody for you to demean or to belittle or to make feel less. This is someone that you should praise. This is somebody that you should thank God for. The wife that he gave to you. Never to demean her. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Could it be that some of you here today treat your wife in such a way that God doesn't even hear your prayers? God doesn't even listen to you because of the way you talk to your wife. You're to live with her in an understanding way. You may say, well, how in the world do you understand a woman? I don't know. But God says to live with her in an understanding way. To show honor to her. That she is an heir with you of God's grace. And if you don't live with your wife in this way, brothers, your prayers are being hindered. They are hitting the ceiling. So often men have this complex where they act as though they're God's gift to women. When in reality, it is the woman who would be God's gift to man. Men, do you praise and thank God for the wife that he gave you? When was the last time you expressed in prayer to God, thank you for my wife? What can you do for your wife to express your appreciation to her? What can you do for her to express that you honor her and that you love her, that you truly understand her as God's gift to you? And maybe we could take a little bit of a page out of Adam's playbook and do what he does in verse 23. Look there again with me, where he says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. How wonderful is this? Adam bursting into poetry, even though it doesn't rhyme in terms of our English, he's bursting into poetry here concerning his wife. God builds Eve from Adam's rib. He walks her down the aisle to him. And verse 22 brings her to Adam, and Adam simply erupts into poetry. And this is the first time within the Bible that you get any kind of hint of culture in terms of man. This is the first art. This is the first poetry right from the beginning. And maybe some of you guys need to go home and you need to write your wife a poem. But the man says, at last. And then he names her. He understands that while being made in the image of God along with his wife, that he is one who would have authority over her. And he names her. And there are important implications to these verses in regard to marriage and their cultural expression in the 21st century and something that our nation has been cruising through for the last few decades. We've already seen that there was no helper fit for him when it came to the beasts of the field. Certainly the beasts of the field would be helpful to Adam, but they would not be his ultimate helper. The man would, would not be to be with an animal in the way that he would be with a woman. And this is something that the law ends up making clear to completely eradicate any kind of bestiality, any kind of relationship in that way. 
But it also displays that polygamy was not God's intention either. As you go throughout the Bible, polygamy is something that God does regulate, but it is not something that he instated. In an effort to produce more children or to have more dominion, God didn't give Adam several wives. After all, you you only have so many ribs to take out anyway. But the original scenario, which we understand as God's original intention for man and woman, would be a monogamous marriage. So polygamy cannot be proved from this text. But also, it is clear that marriage was originally and only intended for one man and one woman. That despite our nation's intentions to legalize and to normalize homosexual unions, it is not marriage. It is mirage. It is quite simply not God's intention for a man and a man or a woman and a woman to have this kind of relationship. And it does not have his blessing. This text serves as a basis for the traditional understanding of marriage that occurs between one man and one woman for the rest of their lives. And we even get an indication of its duration in verse 24. Look there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God has brought together, let no man tear asunder, right? That this is something that's supposed to last, to be together. That men, you cleave to your wives and you hold fast to your wives. You hold on to them and love them and nurture them and protect them and care for them. This is something that's obviously added by Moses, the author of Genesis, because Adam didn't have a father or mother, right? So this wasn't something that was told to Adam, hey Adam, leave your mom and dad, because he had no mom and dad to leave. He was created. But this would be the command and expectation, The one flesh relationship, the most intimate human relationship that you can have with someone, this side of heaven, it happens between a man and a woman. And in terms of application and how we think through a verse like verse 24 and how it applies throughout our our, our marriages, and I think this is something that many Christians often miss, that when young Christian men marry young Christian women, it is so important that they leave And that they cleave. That those two young people are not looking for the same relationships with everybody that they've always had. That that men, when you get married, your buddies go down the totem pole. Women, when, when you get married, your girlfriends go down the totem pole. Even mom and dad, you shift down the totem pole. When kids come along, they do not take over the priority of the relationship that you and your spouse are to have. This is something that just happens all of the time. That when you have a a, a young married couple and that they bring children into the equation, that is so vital that it it is the children who are centering around mom and dad and not mom and dad who are centering around children. Because then what happens when little Jimmy goes off? Well, they're still rotating around and their focus is their children and not one another. And this becomes so problematic in relationships. That you are not called to cleave and to be one flesh with your buddies. You're not called to leave and to cleave to your parents. You're not called to leave and to cleave your children. You're called to leave and to cleave and be together in one flesh with your spouse. And so everybody gets knocked down the totem pole when you get married. So many issues arise when that doesn't happen. Ask the newly married wife what she feels like when her husband pals are over every night. And it seems like they're taking the priority. Or ask the husband who feels a certain level of strain from his mother and father-in-law to do this or to do that. I've been blessed with truly wonderful in-laws who have, in my seven years of marriage, they've just never been overbearing. 
They've never told me what to do. They've never done anything. They've been an immense source of godly encouragement and wisdom. But there's always been a line that they drew and said, that is your relationship. It, it is you and Bethany now. And, and you are responsible for how that goes. That, again, they offer input. They offer godly wisdom and all of that. But it can be so difficult when mom and dad are imposing and pressing and causing stress within the relationship. But Moses also adds something interesting in verse 25 here as well. Look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. They were not ashamed. So when God walks Eve down the aisle, as it were, and you see that in verse 22, God brings the woman to man. And he brings her to him. She is not wearing a veil. She has no clothes. And he has no clothes. We have a really hard time from separating nudity from sexuality or nudity from caring caring for ourselves in a shower because we are always clothed. None of you thought about showing up to church today without any clothes because you would understand that to be shameful. But for Adam and Eve, this is simply not the way it was. God made them to be this way. But the amazing thing about this is that there was simply nothing to feel shame about. That everything was harmonious and perfect. There was zero shame. And this has nothing to do with the fact that, oh, Adam was the first created man and Eve was the first created woman. So in terms of their body and their body image, they were just perfect. Like they had the perfect bodies. That's why they were unashamed. That's not the truth. The reason that they were not ashamed is because there was no sin. As I've had children, this has become something I've thought about uh, a little bit in light of bath times in our home. And I'm sure a lot of you have had kids and you've had some experience with this. That Little kids just don't seem to have that shame. Like after bath time, it's like running around for a free-for-all, exhibitionist. Like it just doesn't matter. Like that's what they're going to do. They're going to streak around the house. And that's no big deal to them. No real care. And I've often wondered if that's because they just don't have a real settled and fundamental understanding of sin. That they, they, their lack of shame shows their lack of understanding of sin. So they're conceived in sin, they're obviously sinners, but they don't, feel, they don't really understand that they are. So they don't feel that shame. As adults, we understand that post-fall, that nudity is vulnerability. That we wear clothes because it's cold out. We wear clothes because uh, of our work environments for protection. Or we wear clothes for maybe style purposes. But fundamentally, at its very center, we wear clothes because we are sinners. We wear clothes because pure, unmitigated innocence and trust are gone. And so to be naked now is to be vulnerable. To be naked in front of others is to be humiliated. When you even think of our Lord on the cross... And not only was he beaten, not only did he have the crown of thorns, not only did he have all of that happen to him being nailed there, but he was naked. And in that nakedness, humiliated, vulnerable. But in this state of Genesis 2 perfection, in paradise, the man and woman were both naked and they were not ashamed. Nothing to feel vulnerable about. No lack of trust just in a state of sheer perfection, without sin, to make them aware of their nakedness. But when we think about marriage and 
we begin to connect it elsewhere in the Bible. And we take Genesis 2 and we begin to jump into further areas. Why is this so important? Why is marriage, one man and one woman, important? We need to really understand this because so often within the church and outside of the church, we can idolize marriage. Like we can make it the, the, the end. Like, oh, I finally got married. Like, I made it to my end. And some of you may idolize marriage. If you want to be married and you're not married, you can idolize this thing. But marriage doesn't serve as an end. Marriage is really a, a reflector. It, it points us onward to something else. And so what is it that marriage pushes us on to? It's the marriage between Jesus and the church. Christian marriages are to point to Jesus and the church. Jesus says that when we're in heaven, we're going to be like the angels in heaven and neither married or given in marriage. However, while we may not be married to our spouses for all of eternity, we will be part of a marriage for all of eternity. Take your Bible and turn again to Ephesians 5. I want you to see this text that Jeff read again for us. Ephesians 5. The Apostle Paul fleshes this out for us within these verses. How the marriage of a man and a woman pictures the marriage between Jesus and the church. But Ephesians chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then here's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However... Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the imagery that we see here of God's people being married to God or married to Christ, this fills the entire Bible in both the Old and the New Testaments. Fill, fulfills, fills it all. This is such an important thing to grasp. I once read uh, one pastor say that the entire point of the Bible, if you're looking for a very few simple, just little statement, that what is the point of the Bible? It is this. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. And this makes so much sense when you understand the storyline of the Bible. From the beginning to the end, Adam and Eve would leave their state of sinless perfection after the fall. They would disobey God. They know that they are naked and now they understand evil. And so the snake comes, this great dragon comes named Satan. And he tempts Eve in Genesis chapter 3, which is where we will begin next week. But Eve sins, Adam sins, the human race is spiraling downward out of control from that point on. And the story of the Bible begins to be this redemptive story. That there's, there's this promise in Genesis chapter 3 that says somebody is going to come and crush the head of the snake. 
Somebody is going to come and deal with the dragon. He's going to come and handle it. Man had messed everything up. Man was now lost. How was God going to save us? And we start seeing pictures all throughout the Bible. From Genesis 3.15 onward. All of these pictures. All of these things that are pointing us to Jesus. Accounts of salvation that point us to Jesus. Explicit Old Testament references to Jesus. Like in Isaiah 53. And the story of the Bible is how Jesus is going to come and kill the dragon and save his bride. He has come for the snake. He has crushed the skull of Satan. And one day, he'll fully and finally slay the dragon. But he's going to get his girl. He's going to get his bride. He's going to save his damsel in distress, despite the fact that she's the one who put herself in distress. And when Jesus comes and actively obeys the law of God, and he dies on the cross for our sins, and he rises from the dead, we see all of that in the Gospels. It is in these actions that he is dealing this mortal blow to Satan that Satan will never recover from. And one day Jesus will put the final nail in Satan's coffin. And even now, Jesus is saving his bride. Jesus is wooing her, bringing her to himself. He's adding to her. He's purifying her. And all those who have been saved by Jesus, they're being sanctified by Jesus. And we are members of his bride. So as Paul recites Genesis 2.24 in Ephesians 5.31, he says that this whole thing is a mystery. That the relationship between a husband and a wife pictures the relationship of Jesus and his church. As one person says, Christ in the church is the template for marriage and all human marriage is a shadow form of the cosmic romance God is unfolding for Christ and the, Christ the King and his glorious bride. When we think of application and that Jesus has brought us to be a part of his bride, I think that has to help inform how we think about his bride. How do you think about the bride of Jesus? What do you think about the church? How do you relate to the church? A good question I've heard is, if everybody treated the church like you do, what would it look like? Another author said that you can't love Jesus and divorce yourself from his bride. If you truly love Jesus, you'll love his church and love to worship with the church. Is that true of you? You have conversations with people that are professing to be Christians for decades. And they don't love the church. Like, I love Windsor Christian Fellowship. And when I say I love Windsor Christian Fellowship, I'm not talking about four walls. I'm talking about people sitting in chairs. Talk about people where we interact and love one another in each other's lives and caring for one another and serving one another with our gifts. You are the church. You are the body of Christ. We are all together in this. So when I say I love Windsor Christian Fellowship, it has nothing to do with a building and everything to do with the people. But so often what you get is people that say, I love the church, but they truly, in the way that they practically live out their lives, they show that they don't love the church. I love Jesus, but I don't love who Jesus died for. How does that make sense? To say, I love the church, but I don't want to be with them. I don't want to be around them. I don't care for them. How can you truly say you love Jesus if you don't love the church? 
Can I take you to one more passage before we close? And turn to the end of your Bible. Turn to Revelation 19. I mentioned that the Bible began and finished with a wedding. And two weddings in paradise. The one wedding in the beginning. The one wedding at the end. But I'd like to see this last one for a moment. I want you to think and dwell upon this today, friends. That eternity is a long time. It's not even a time. You can't use the word time in relation to eternity. We get so consumed with what is happening today, what is happening this afternoon, tomorrow, and this week, but eternity is forever and ever and ever. And all of us are either going to be in heaven with our groom, or we are going to be in hell, separated from him for all eternity. And like any husband worth his salt would do, Jesus gave his life for his bride. He died on the cross for her sins. He rose from the dead to give her life. And he clothed her with his beautiful robes of righteousness. The Bible says in Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Have you taken hold of Christ, friend? Have you trusted in the work of the great groom on your behalf? But look at Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is just an unfathomable scene like so many in the book of Revelation are. So many of the redeemed. And John hears what is the one single voice of a great multitude. He's, when, he, when he corresponds it to something else on planet earth that he can say that it's like, he says, it's like the roar of many waters. The sound of this people is like the crashing, the pealing of thunder. And with one voice, this massive multitude of people are crying out, Hallelujah! What would it be like to hear that word hallelujah and for it to sound like an ocean raging or to sound like the thunder going crazy, right? That they're rejoicing and exulting and giving God glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. That it's time for His wedding. It's time for what was destroyed to finally be wonderful and perfect once again. That the groom had finally come. That He had left His Father's presence to come to earth and to give His life for His bride. And He will clothe her for all of eternity. He will cleave to His bride who is clothed with purity. And so Jesus is going to, in that sense, obey Genesis 2.24. That He did leave His Father. And even now, beginning and fully and finally, then he will cleave to his bride. He will cleave to his wife for all of eternity. And as Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed in the garden, perfect in trust and relationship, so will we be forever with the Lord. Never any need to feel ashamed. Never any shame between the bride of Jesus and him. But perfect in trust. Perfect in relationship. Never having to come to him as her husband and asking forgiveness. Never having to ask him for forgiveness for pride or lust or envy or impatience. There will never be a need for Jesus and the church, his bride, to have marital counseling. That we will be with our groom forever. 
and we will love him to the full and we will never be out of his presence. We will be totally loved and enjoyed and we will totally love and enjoy him in paradise forever. And so Adam and Eve, they, they provide us with a little bit of a glimmer in these very first days in perfection what it will be like for us to enjoy our groom for all of eternity. And do you look forward to that day? Do, do you look forward to that day? Then live in light of it now. Let's pray. Father, we, we're thankful that you are purifying your bride and your pressing out the wrinkles, removing the stains that's reflected in, in all of us. God, I pray that you'll give us humility that we need as you press and pull those things away from us and the sin away. We, we so long and look forward to the day where we are with the multitude at the sound of roaring waters and the sound of thunder pealing saying hallelujah for the lamb has come our groom has come it is time for the marriage we look forward to that day but lord we do have the opportunity now to be a part of the bride of jesus we're so thankful for that thank you for bringing us into it in jesus name amen